On today's episode, we have a couple of Hollywood classics, starting with Casablanca from 1942 and The Wizard of Oz from 1939. everyone welcome to brandon at random reviews i am your host brandon griffiths thank you for stopping by i do appreciate it today on the show like i said we have some fucking great classic hollywood movies fucking love these two i mean honestly they're just so great and i just can't wait to dig in and talk about them so we'll start with casablanca which was released on november 26 1942 directed by michael curtis And he also directed White Christmas, which is a movie that I can tolerate sitting through. It's a musical. It's a bit much, but, you know, I don't mind it. It's not bad. He did Mildred Pierce, and he also did The Adventures of Robin Hood. For the writers, we have Julius J. Epstein, Philip G. Epstein, and Howard Koch. For the producers, we have Hal B. Wallace. He did True Grit, the John Wayne one, and I really like that one still. I mean, I like the Jeff Bridges one as well, but it's still a very good movie. He did The Maltese Falcon, which is an all-time great, and he did The Sons of Katie Elder, which is another John Wayne movie, and I don't think I've ever seen that one, and I really would like to. I think it would be worth watching, but who knows. For the score, we have composer Max Steiner, and he did The Searchers, which was another John Wayne movie, and I believe that one was pretty culturally relevant. It was kind of about, like, race relations and things like that, and just had different themes throughout it that were very important. He also did Key Largo, which I need to check out. The Big Sleep, which is an all-time favorite detective story, just I mean, I loved the book. I loved the movie. uh, It's all so fucking great. And he also did Mildred Pierce, which is another solid movie. It's not one of my favorites, but I still enjoy it. For the cast, we have Humphrey Bogart, and he plays Rick Blaine. He was in The African Queen with Katherine Hepburn, which was a solid movie. He was in the movie In a Lonely Place, which was probably one of the more depressing movies I've ever seen. I mean, it was just such a downer. I just, he was in Sabrina, and that had Audrey Hepburn in it, I believe. He was in Key Largo, which I already mentioned I would like to see, and To Have and Have Not, which is another one that's on my list to check out. Then we have Ingrid Bergman, who plays Ilsa Lund, and she was in Gaslight, which is a good suspense movie. She was in Spellbound, which is an Alfred Hitchcock movie, and she was in Autumn Sonata, which is pretty well regarded, but it's also like a foreign language film, so I'm not really sure that I'll check it out anytime soon. Then we have Paul Henry, who plays Victor Laszlo, and he hasn't really been in jack shit, and he was reluctant to take this role for fear of being typecast until he was given top billing with Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman. Apparently, he didn't get along super well with those two, as he thought Bogart was just a mediocre actor, and Ingrid Bergman actually called Henry a prima donna. So, obviously, like, I mean, he hasn't been in much other than this movie that I know of, and, I mean, 
it kind of just goes to show you that maybe he was the problem. Then we have Claude Rains, who plays Captain Louis Renault, and he was in The Invisible Man, which was a pretty good monster flick. He was in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington with Jimmy Stewart, and he was in The Adventures of Robin Hood as Prince John, and he was a great Prince John. I really liked him in that role. Okay, so for a plot synopsis, we have, During World War II, a man must decide whether or not to help his former lover and her husband escape the Nazis when they cross paths at his cafe in Northwest Africa. All right, let's dive right into the plot of this movie. So before the movie really starts, we get voiceover explaining that many were looking to escape Europe and were looking toward the Americas when World War II broke out. A refugee trail sprang up and the last stop was in Casablanca, which is in French Morocco, and they'd have to get these official documents before they'd be allowed to go to Lisbon. So this would be during a time when Germany was occupying France, but had not yet fully taken control of its territories. And we find out that two German officers carrying official documents were murdered, and the documents were stolen, and multiple suspicious men are wanted by the police, and the suspects are being rounded up or killed. This sequence is pretty wild. They basically set up how ruthless the Germans are about these papers, Major Heinrich Strasser is getting off of a plane and is greeted by Captain Louis Renault. Strasser and Renault discuss suspects and their intentions to go to Rick's Café Americain, which I believe roughly translates to Rick's American Café. We see the café and it's bustling with people and seems to have a fairly lighthearted atmosphere at first glance, but we see that there are a lot of sad, desperate people who are basically just struggling just to keep waiting for their chance to leave. I spotted this guy in the cafe, and it's the guy that plays Martini in It's a Wonderful Life, and I really like when I do that in old movies where I actually recognize someone because it's just a lot more rare, you know? There are a lot of low-key discussions and deals being made in secret at the cafe, and we see Rick for the first time, and he's smoking a cigarette and playing chess with himself. Like, what a fucking badass. I gotta say, Humphrey Bogart, even in his early roles, he always looked like he was at least 50 years old, and he died fairly young. Peter Lorre plays a character named Ugardi, and he stops Rick and talks to him. And by the way, if you want to know what Peter Lorre looks like, just Google creepiest man ever or something like that, and you'll probably see him. Like, he's legitimately unpleasant to look at. Rick is a cynic and has personal policies about when he drinks, and you can just tell he'd rather not be talking to Ugardi, but it's tough to say if that's his personality or it's just a natural human response to Peter Lorre. Ugardi trusts Rick with holding on to the two letters of transit that he intends to sell. Rick points out to Ugardi that the German officers who were killed were said to be carrying letters of transit, and Ugardi just kind of acts like he knows nothing about it. If I were in Rick's shoes here, I'd probably say no, given that it might implicate me in a murder, you know? Like, I mean, why would you want to involve yourself with that? A man offers to hire the piano player Sam for twice the money that Rick's paying him, but Sam declines because he says he's happy there, and he doesn't even have the time to spend the money that he makes. So Sam's obviously pretty fucking loyal to Rick for whatever reason, and Rick goes outside and talks to Renault, and Renault talks to Rick about if he's ever considered leaving Casablanca. Rick kind of evades giving a straight answer to him. He 
kind of plays it cool at all times and doesn't really like to reveal the cards he's holding. You have to think that Rick wouldn't be happy there, you know? Like, dealing with all of the shit that he has to deal with would not be fun. Renault warns Rick that they intend to arrest a murderer at his cafe that night. He goes on to tell Rick that a man named Victor Laszlo will be around and intends to pay top dollar to get the documents he needs to leave the country. Rick seems impressed by the mention of this Victor Laszlo. Apparently, Victor Laszlo is a renowned fugitive Czech resistance leader, and he's kind of a big deal in the fight against the Germans. It seems like Rick damn near respects the guy, and that's no small thing, honestly. They also talk about the woman Victor Laszlo has with him, and you just know she's going to be a fucking fox right off the bat. Strasser arrives, and Renault goes to hang out with him in the cafe and tells him that he will soon witness the murderer's arrest. Officers stop Ugardi at the bar and ask him to come with them. Ugardi stalls for a bit and then tries to run, but gets caught after pleading with Rick to hide him. And Rick is then introduced to Strasser by Renault, and they sit down together and talk with Rick for a while. But you can tell that Strasser is driving at something. Strasser doesn't like Laszlo, obviously, because he's the enemy, and he's trying to get a feel for where Rick stands with it all. And Rick obviously doesn't like to play sides in his business. Like, Rick basically has to appease those in power, but he also does a lot of business with these people that are trying to flee the country. Victor and his lady walk in, and Sam at the piano seems on edge when he sees the wife. A man approaches them at their table about buying something, but you know they're kind of talking in code to one another about something else. It's kind of a cool thing they have in this cafe. Everybody seems like they're up to something at all times. Renault comes and interrupts to introduce himself to Victor and his wife. He mentions how super hot Ingrid Bergman is, and we find out that her name is Ilsa. Ilsa mentions that she recognizes Sam, and Renault explains that Sam came with Rick. She asks who this Rick is, and Renault basically explains that if he were gay, he would do Rick, which is basically the highest praise that one comfortable in his sexuality straight man can say about another dude. Sam comes over to talk to Ilsa and says he didn't expect to ever see her again, and Ilsa asks Sam more about Rick, and Sam tries to curb her curiosity with some lies, but she keeps prying. Then Sam basically just tells her to stay away and that she's bad luck to Rick. Ilsa makes Sam sing As Time Goes By, which you can tell he's been avoiding. I'm making her sound kind of domineering, but she's really very kind and just wants to hear the song, and she doesn't see why there'd be a problem with it. When Sam plays it, Rick rushes out to stop him, and he sees Ilsa. So Rick, Ilsa, Victor, and Renault sit for a bit and introduce one another, and there's a lot of tension at the table as Laszlo knows the Germans want him dead, and of course Rick and Ilsa have something going on we don't really know the full story on yet. After everyone leaves for the night, Rick stays up drinking in his loft above the cafe. Sam comes trying to talk Rick out of going into a drunken stupor, and Rick says the classic line, you know, of all the gin joints and all the towns and all the world, she walks into mine. We get a flashback of Rick and Ilsa together in Paris, and they're so happy running around doing romantic shit. Like, they're clearly head over heels in love with each other. Rick keeps saying, here's looking at you, kid, when he and Ilsa toast. And I gotta be honest, I didn't understand this quote without looking it up, so I googled it, and basically it just means that he's glad she's there, and she looks beautiful, and it's just a very unique way of flirting with her. 
they have this no questions policy, Rick and Ilsa, that they have trouble sticking to. They seem to have enacted this rule to keep from discussing their past. Despite this policy, Ilsa explains to Rick that her husband is dead after he asks her about it. The two of them make the most of their time in Paris as France is being taken over by the Nazis, and I'm still wowed by the fact that they actually filmed this when everything was actually going on with World War II, but they obviously shot it in California. They weren't, like, on location. They arrange plans to leave Paris, and Elsa seems very uneasy about something, but she's not telling Rick. She's supposed to meet Rick at the train station, but she doesn't show and leaves a letter that Sam brings. The letter says that she cannot go and gives no real explanation, but she says that she loves Rick. This creates the bitter post-Paris Rick that we know and love and we've been seeing in this movie up to that point. I just can't help but feel like I would have responded the same way after a whirlwind romance with a hottie like that who just left me high and dry like she did. Back in the present, Ilsa comes to see Rick and talk to him. She needed to be way more forthcoming with explaining what happened in this moment. Like, she could have stopped and said, Rick, I need you to understand that this is why I didn't come with you to leave Paris. But Rick is drunk and pissed off at her and he asks her about who she left him to be with and all of that. Elsa tears up and leaves without saying anything, and it's so emotional. Like, at this point, I would say we're feeling a lot more for Rick, and we just don't know what's happening on Elsa's end. But you know Elsa has something to get off her chest, you know, like, that much is clear in this moment. The next day, Victor and Ilsa come to see Strasser and Renault. Strasser assures that every exit visa requires Renault's signature, and Renault assures them that he won't sign theirs if they get it. Strasser says he will allow them to leave if Victor tells them the names and whereabouts of the leaders of underground movements in several pivotal cities. This is where we find out that Victor spent a year in a concentration camp, and he explains that if they couldn't get him to give up the information in a fucking concentration camp, then he doesn't plan to give it up now. Strasser reveals that Ugardi, who they arrested at Rick's, is now dead, and no one is certain, but they're all pretty sure that Rick has the letters of transit, and this one big-timer guy named Ferrari talks to Rick and suggests he'll give a lucrative deal to whoever has them. But we really get it coming through that Rick doesn't want to sell the papers, or at the very least, he's unsure what to do with them, and may even want to use them for himself. Rick sees Ilsa on the streets, and since he's sobered up, he tells her that he's ready for that explanation she was going to give him while he was drunk, and Ilsa is very cold toward Rick and doesn't really want to explain it anymore. She says that she sees the kind of man that Rick has become and how much he hates her now, but I mean... Like, what I don't get is if she realizes what she's done to Rick, wouldn't she feel compelled to tell him what happened even more? To at least give him peace of mind or something? I just love Ingrid Bergman's accent, by the way. It's so fucking great. I'm pretty sure she's Swedish, and you don't really hear that accent much at all these days. I'd really like to. Ilsa makes a remark about Victor having been her husband even when her and Rick were together in Paris, and she leaves it at that and walks away, which it's like... With what we find out later, why would you basically leave Rick with the impression that the romance with Rick was basically just infidelity? 
Later, Victor tries to convince Ilsa to take an opportunity to go to Lisbon if she gets it, and she won't leave without him, and she knows he wouldn't leave without her. And my question is, were people talking like this and being proper all the time back then, or was it just in the movies? Like, they had a certain way of delivering lines back then, and although I love old movies, I don't really think any of this acting would pass muster today. Anyway, Ferrari reveals to Victor and Ilsa that it is believed that Rick has the papers, which are also called the Letters of Transit, if I didn't mention that, which I think I did. The Nazis raided Rick's place trying to find the papers to no avail, and that's because Slick Ricky Boy is smarter than some two-bit fucking Nazis and didn't leave them in just any old place to be found. Strasser questions Renault's loyalties, and Renault basically says that he's a Fairweather fan, and I can respect that. A young woman comes to the cafe and tells Rick that she's trying to get her and her husband their letters of transit, but they don't have any money. She said that Renault told them that he will give them the visa even knowing that they are broke, and she wants to know if Rick thinks Renault will keep his word. And Rick clearly arranges for the young woman and her husband to pay their visa by rigging the roulette game in the cafe. And Renault realizes that Rick has arranged this, but seems cool with it and just plays ignorant in the whole thing. Victor and Ilsa come to hang out at the cafe again, and Rick keeps drinking out of this little bitty snifter wine glass looking thing. I just fucking love it. Like, I don't know what the glass is called, though, and it's a real bummer because that's the kind of thing that I would order a set of from Amazon and never use them when I got them, but I'd just really like it if I did. So Victor comes to see Rick, and he begins asking about whether or not he can have the visas that he knows Rick clearly has, but Rick claims there is no price he would take. Victor asks why, and Rick just says, ask your wife. Which, I mean, for Victor, that's gotta really fucking put you in a tough spot. Like, do you trust Rick in that scenario? So there's a big back and forth with the different musicians in the cafe at one point, and they each play songs that are beloved by the French or by the Germans. Strasser makes Renault close Rick's down because of the demonstration. And man, I just gotta say, you know, you can't help but hate these piece of shit Nazis. I mean, I, I'm willing... To take the backlash from it, I don't like Nazis, guys. I'm not a fan. Strasser tells Ilsa that he's giving her and her husband the choice of either going to occupied France or they can go to a concentration camp. Later on, Victor presses Ilsa about what happened while she was in Paris, and he even explains that he'd understand if she got lonely. Victor goes out for a bit, and Ilsa goes over to sneak into Rick's and surprise him when he is done for the night. Rick seems pretty fed up with Ilsa since she's not being straight with him, and mind you, he still has every reason to be mad at her at this point, probably more so than initially. She seems very conflicted, as you might imagine, and has a lot on her mind, and it's like, I get it, you know? Ilsa pleads with him to give her the papers, but he won't budge, and he's being incredibly stubborn, which is all we've really known Rick to be in this movie so far. Then Ilsa pulls a gun on him and tells him to give up the papers. Rick calls her bluff, and he says she'll be doing him a favor to kill him, and she begins tearing up. She explains how she was under the impression that Victor was actually dead when her and Rick were together in Paris. Ilsa thinks that she wants to stay in Casablanca with Rick and just let Victor go, and she thinks Victor will have plenty to keep him occupied with all the things that he's been fighting for. 
Rick says Victor won't leave her, and that's very important. Ilsa is so lovey-dovey with Rick in this moment, and it's like, Jesus Christ, Ilsa, get it the fuck together. Like, just figure out what you want to do. Victor is down in the cafe, so Ilsa leaves another way, and Rick talks to Victor. He pleads with Rick that if he won't give the letters to him, at least let Ilsa have them so that his wife will be safe. Seems like an all-around good guy, I'm gonna be honest. Like, he's not the typical other man type that you don't want to root for. Like, he seems like a good person, and, you know, you can't help but like him. This also shows that both of them were willing to let the other one go to protect them, essentially. They come and arrest Laszlo with, like, zero cause because they're the Nazis, so they don't care. And Rick pleads with Renault to release Laszlo, and Renault can't really understand where Rick's coming from all of a sudden. Later, Rick gives Victor the letters of transit, and it's made to look like a setup trapping Victor at first. So Renault goes to arrest Victor, but Rick pulls a fucking gun on Renault and forces forces him to take them all to the airport. At the airport, when Renault goes to fill out the paperwork, Rick says to fill in the names Mr. and Mrs. Victor Laszlo, and this is a fucking game-changing moment in this plot in the 11th hour. Ilsa clearly didn't realize that Rick would be sending them both. Like, she was, I think, still laboring under the impression that she would stay with Rick in Casablanca. Ilsa asks Rick what the fuck's going on, and Rick explains that it's basically more important that she go and be Victor's love and motivation as opposed to staying in miserable Casablanca. Rick realizes this does not end well for him, as he's doing all this shit that typically gets people killed, but he does it anyway like a fucking pimp. Rick explains to Laszlo what Ilsa tried to do to get him safe passage. Strasser comes to the airport as the Laszlos have already started takeoff, and you feel like Rick is really fucked in this moment, you know? Strasser definitely wanted to keep Laszlo where he was and maybe even kill him, and now he can't even do either. Strasser goes to call backup, despite Rick saying not to, and Rick shoots him dead. Renault witnesses the whole thing and simply orders the backup to round up the usual suspects like was done at the beginning of the movie. Rick and Renault walk away and Rick says, Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. And that's the end of the movie. I, I just fucking love this movie. I have so much praise for it. You know, the writing, the chemistry, especially between Bogart and Bergman. And then you've got the ending scene, basically, where there's the sacrifice by Rick, where it's like he's giving himself up so that he can let them go on and do more important things. And it's just really great. So my only criticism for this one is no nudity. You know, I mean, what the fuck? For some trivia, we have many of the actors who played the Nazis were in fact German Jews who had escaped from Nazi Germany. The film was actually shot entirely in California. Rick's Cafe was one of the few original sets built for the film, and the rest were all recycled from other Warner Brothers productions due to wartime restrictions on building supplies. Rick never says, play it again, Sam, in this movie, despite it being misquoted a lot of times. He says, you played it for her, you can play it for me. If she can stand it, I can. Play it. The incorrect line has become the basis for spoofs in movies such as A Night in Casablanca from 1946 and Play It Again Sam from 1972. With the death of Madeleine LeBeau on May 1st, 2016, there are no surviving members of the credited cast. As of December 31st, 2016, 
The only surviving person from the cast and crew is Robert Eisner, who is credited as miscellaneous crew and worked as a technical advisor. He was born on March 23rd, 1908, and there is no record of his death, but I think it's pretty safe to say that that dude is dead. Humphrey Bogart, who was 5 foot 8 inches tall, had to stand on blocks and sit on extra cushions to appear as tall or taller than Ingrid Bergman, who was 5 foot 10. So there's, this is going to be a little ridiculous, and I totally realize that, but the, the quote at the end of the movie, like the sequence of events, and Rick and Ilsa talking to each other, I just fucking love it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share a little part of it, just because. So Rick says... I'm saying it because it's true. Inside of us, we both know that you belong with Victor. You're part of his work, the thing that keeps him going. If that plane leaves the ground and you're not with him, you'll regret it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. Ilsa says, but what about us? Rick says, we'll always have Paris. We didn't have, we, we lost it until you came to Casablanca. We got it back last night. Ilsa says, when I said I would never leave you, Rick says, and you never will. But I've got a job to do too. Where I'm going, you can't follow. What I've got to do, you can't be any part of. Ilsa, I'm no good at being noble, but it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. Someday you'll understand that. And she starts crying and he says, now, now, here's looking at you, kid. So that's my best dramatic reading that I can do. I'm sorry. I just had to do it. So info and ratings. We have a runtime of 102 minutes, a budget of 950,000, worldwide gross 4.22 million, IMDb rating 8.5, Rotten Tomato Critics score 99%, Rotten Tomato Audience score 95%, personal rating 5 out of 5 stars. This is one of the all-time greats. I mean, you got to give this movie a shot. Honestly, if you're one of those people that doesn't like black and white movies that I'm sorry. I mean, you're just missing out. So next up, we have The Wizard of Oz, which came out on August 25th, 1939, directed by Victor Fleming, based on the novel by L. Frank Baum. There were actually 17 sequels to this novel, three of which came out after Baum's death. For the writers, we have Noel Langley, Florence Ryerson, and Edgar Allan Wolfe. For the producer, we have Mervyn Leroy, and for the score, we have composer Harold Arlen. For the cast, we have Judy Garland, and she plays Dorothy Gale. She was in A Star is Born, the original. And I read this online. Judy Garland's strict diet while filming The Wizard of Oz consisted of chicken soup, black coffee, and up to 80 cigarettes a day. And she was like 16, 17 when this movie was being made. Fucking crazy. Then we have Frank Morgan, who plays Professor Marvel slash The Wizard slash a whole bunch of other people. Ray Bolger, who plays Hunk slash The Scarecrow. Burt Lahr, who plays Zeke slash The Cowardly Lion. Jack Haley, who plays Hickory slash The Tin Man. Billy Burke, who plays Glinda the Good Witch. Margaret Hamilton, who plays Miss Gulch slash The Wicked Witch of the West. And I honestly like her performance. If I don't mention it, she's fucking amazing in this movie. It's top notch. So a little bit more casting notes. We have Toto was paid $125 a week and the Munchkins were paid $50 a week. So the dog was paid more 
than the Munchkins were. But to be fair, I'm not saying it's right or wrong or indifferent. I'm just saying Toto definitely has more screen time than the Munchkins. And I'm not saying that that makes it okay. I'm just saying. So the studio, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, outbid 20th Century Fox for the movie rights. Fox had wanted Shirley Temple to star in this movie. For a plot synopsis, we have young Dorothy Gale and her dog Toto are swept away by a tornado from their Kansas farm to the magical land of Oz, and they embark on a quest with three new friends to see the wizard who can return her to her home and fulfill the other's wishes. So an alternate plot synopsis for this one. I read this online years ago, and I just loved it. I think it went viral, and it... Oh my god, it's so fucking great. So, this is the plot synopsis, and it looks like it's from a newspaper. It says, Transported to a surreal landscape, a young girl kills the first person she meets and then teams up with three strangers to kill again. I fucking love it. So let's dive right into this plot. You know, I wish movies still did the opening credits like they used to. The movie starts off not in typical black and white, but in sepia, so it kind of looks even older. Toto and Dorothy are running from some woman, and Dorothy goes to tell Aunt Em and her uncle about what Miss Gulch did to her and Toto, but they're counting chicks, and they don't really want to hear what Dorothy has to say. Miss Gulch apparently hit Toto on the back with a rake because he got into her garden and he would chase her cat and things like that. Aunt Em shoes Dorothy away because her and her uncle Henry are busy. I mean, Dorothy has to be supposedly younger than the... 16-year-old Judy Garland. It's such a little kid thing that she's doing. Then Dorothy tries bitching to the farmhand, who is named Hunk, and he explains that she ought to just avoid Miss Gulch's place and that'll solve it. But Dorothy doesn't really want to hear the logical nonsense Hunk has to say, and she wants to piss and moan about it, basically. So Dorothy walks on the rail between these two pigsties and falls into one of them, and This other farmhand, Zeke, has to rescue her, and Zeke gets a little fucking freaked out by the experience. I mean, like, terrified. Which, I mean, it's like, I guess if he thought Dorothy was gonna fucking die, that's probably pretty traumatic. Dorothy won't shut up about Miss Gulch, and Aunt Em is fed up with her. Dorothy dreams of a better place, so she sings Over the Rainbow, which is one of the greatest songs in all of movies. Miss Gulch comes by bike to bitch to Henry and M about Dorothy and Toto. Miss Gulch wants to take Toto to have him destroyed, as she puts it. Initially, Dorothy's aunt and uncle say no, but Gulch has an order from the sheriff allowing her to take the dog. Aunt M wants to tell Gulch how she really feels about her, but she can't because she says she's a good Christian woman, which is... The best thing you can possibly say to somebody to basically tell them to fuck off without actually saying it. I would have loved to just see a fucking deleted scene where Aunt M just fucks Mrs. Gulch's bitch ass up. So Gulch takes Toto in a basket on her bike and Toto escapes. Toto comes back and Dorothy is overjoyed. Dorothy decides they need to run away and on her travels she runs into a Professor Marvel who is a real snake oil salesman type. After several guesses, he correctly assumes that Dorothy has run away from home, and it's like, well, yeah, I mean, if you're going to give him a bunch of guesses, then he should probably be right eventually. Dorothy wants to go with the professor on his journeys, and he sits with her, and he puts on a turban, and 
goes to look into his crystal ball. The professor gets a lot of things right when he's seeing visions, but it seems like maybe he's seen it before, so it's not that incredible. He makes it sound like M is in trouble, so a panicked Dorothy decides to go home. The wind starts to pick up pretty bad and we get a tornado. Honestly, the visual effects of the tornado are really pretty fucking good. It looks kinda real in my opinion. The people on the farm fight to get inside and do, but they don't know where the fuck Dorothy is. And when Dorothy arrives, she can't find them and she goes into a bedroom where she's knocked out by a flying piece of debris. And we see a series of things that fly by the window, but it's clear that Dorothy just imagines them. Honestly, Margaret Hamilton is fucking amazing in this movie as both Miss Gulch and the Wicked Witch. Like, she flies by the window in that moment and it's pretty fucking cool. We keep seeing the house flying through the air, and it's very obviously a tiny little model of a house, and then it lands. When Dorothy opens the door to go outside, we get one of the coolest transitions in all of cinema history, which is Dorothy sees a world full of color, where everything was previously black and white, but this is a surreal world, and she says, Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Dorothy now assumes that she is now over the rainbow, and Glinda, the Witch of the North, who is not particularly good-looking, even though they kind of act like she is, and has an annoying voice, even though they don't act like she does, arrives by bubble, I guess? She points out that the house that Dorothy was in landed on, and subsequently killed the Wicked Witch of the East. The witch's legs are sticking out from under the house. This chain of events freed these little munchkins that were under the evil witch's rule. So the munchkins come out to meet Dorothy, and they start singing a song, and I'm not a huge fan, plus it seems to go on fucking forever, but they tell her that she's in the merry old land of Oz. A horse and carriage come and Dorothy gets in, and the munchkins are all thanking Dorothy and singing about the witch being dead, and I don't really like the munchkins, like, it's not the height thing, but the things that they say or how they're made up, or what they wear, I don't like any of it. I don't remember that much of this movie, but I was hoping that this shit with the munchkins didn't last much longer. And after a while, the song was still fucking going, and it had been like four minutes, and it just felt like an hour. It was, ugh, I fucking hated it. Finally, the Wicked Witch of the West shows up and sees what happened to her sister, the other Wicked Witch. Dorothy explains that it was an accident, but the evil witch doesn't really give a shit because people like this witch are really only happy when they're spilling the blood of the innocent. Glinda points out that the Wicked Witch will want her sister's ruby slippers. When the witch goes to get them, they disappear and the legs creepily roll up. And it's funny how much imagery from this movie I still remember after having not seen it in so long. So the witch realizes that the ruby slippers are now magically on Dorothy's feet, and she demands that Dorothy give them up. Glinda says Dorothy should keep them on since they must be powerful, otherwise this witch wouldn't fucking want them, which is a good call, Glinda. The witch vows to get Dorothy and Toto too, and then she vanishes in a cloud of maroon smoke, and the munchkins who scurried away at the sight of the witch show up again. Dorothy wants to go back to Kansas, and Glinda explains that she'll have to go see the Wizard of Oz to make that happen. They tell her just to follow the yellow brick road, and they don't allow her to really ask what to do if something happens to her. They could at least fucking tell her to look for the Emerald City or something. I mean, they're just saying follow the yellow brick road and that's it. I wonder what the estimated distance that she had to walk to get to the wizard and those undoubtedly uncomfortable shoes was. It was, I mean, it had to be a long way. 
The first corner that Dorothy comes to, she meets the Scarecrow, and he is not very fucking helpful giving her directions, and he seems like kind of a total dipshit, if I'm being honest. Dorothy helps the Scarecrow off his pole, and we find out that the Scarecrow has no brain, and he also has a complex about not being able to scare things, since, you know, that's kind of his job. He sings a song about what he would do if he only had a brain, and it's pretty catchy, Maybe they'll use that melody to introduce the inherent flaws in some of the other characters later. The Scarecrow's straw keeps falling out, and he just, like, stuffs it back in, which, by the way, this shit keeps fucking happening to the Scarecrow all the time in this movie, and I would think that it'd be the equivalent of, like, losing your small intestines, but he just seems largely unfazed by it. The Scarecrow decides to go with Dorothy to see the wizard to get home. She warns him about the witch, but he doesn't really give a shit. Hopefully, the witch doesn't figure out what a big weakness fire is for him. Then maybe he wouldn't talk so much shit. Dorothy stops at a tree, and the tree fights back when she goes to grab an apple off of it. And it's pretty cool. It's like a guy in a costume, you know, but it's it's really well done. I really like the costumes in this movie. The Scarecrow talks some more shit, and they run away. And then they run into the Tin Man, and they have to oil him to get him moving and talking normal. The Tin Man explains that he rusted in the rain while chopping a tree, and, you know, I feel like you should have better awareness about the weather forecast if you know a little bit of water will fuck you over like this. He goes on to mention that he has no heart, so naturally he has to sing about what he'd do if he only had a heart with the same melody as Scarecrow's song. One thing I will say, and maybe this is obvious, but there's a very gay energy coming off of the Tin Man at all times. Not that there's anything wrong with that, I'm just saying very gay energy. So the Tin Man dances around for a little longer than he needs to, like way fucking longer than he needs to, and Dorothy suggests that the Tin Man come with her and the Scarecrow to see the wizard, and she assures him that the wizard could give him a heart, and it's kind of like, Dorothy, you really don't fucking know what this wizard is up to giving people, but alright. Then the witch shows up and sees the two men have been helping Dorothy, and she is mad displeased about it. Like, honestly, did they just animate effects right onto the fucking film? Because they're pretty fucking decent by 1939 standards. Like, the witch throws a fireball, and it catches Scarecrow on fire, and they have to put it out. And it's like, I'm not saying I would do poor Scarecrow dirty or nothing, but, you know, if I'm the witch in this scenario, I'm conjuring a hailstorm of fireballs and just putting him out of commission. The witch disappears, and the three of them agree that no matter what, they'll get Dorothy to where she's going. We get a lot of matte painting backdrops that are pretty fucking cool to look at. They travel through the woods and sing about being afraid to see lions and tigers and bears, and so here comes the cowardly lion being very threatening at first. He goes after Toto, and naturally with Dorothy being very protective of Toto, she smacks the lion on the nose for it. The lion shrivels up like the punk bitch he is when this happens, and he's crying shamelessly and openly to the three of them, and it's like, come on, dude, have some fucking self-respect. I mean, something. They convince the lion to come with them to Oz, 
Then he sings about what a big fucking pussy he is as they start on their way. And we see the witch watching them in a crystal ball. That'd be pretty fucking nifty to have, I'll be honest. Like, I'm not on the witch's side here, but she could easily lead an all-out assault on these four and they'd be fucked. They can't even fucking do magic like her. I don't understand what the witch is doing. So the witch really wants to get the slippers, so she casts a spell which creates poppies that are supposed to put them all to sleep. So they come to this field of poppies and they can see the Emerald City on the other side. So they go running across the field and Dorothy starts getting sleepy and she can't find Toto. The Scarecrow and Tin Man are impervious to the poppies and they don't really need help. So Glinda makes it snow on the field, which I guess is kryptonite to poppies since they can't thrive in the cold. I guess that's what's supposed to be happening here. We see the witch watching her ball as all of this unfolds and she's furious. So now they're free to skip to the Emerald City. And the witch says she's going to the Emerald City, presumably to stop them. So our gang comes to the gates of the Emerald City, and a man insists that they knock instead of ringing a bell before he'll give them the time of day, which is like total horseshit. They tell him that they want to see the wizard, and they're allowed in because of Dorothy's ruby slippers, and we get more singing and dancing as they're riding a carriage with a horse that changes colors. It's hilarious because I read that they colored these horses with different kinds of jello, but they had to be quick because they were going fucking nuts trying to lick it off of themselves. Honestly, if I could go to a world where this story didn't exist and I tried explaining it, people would legitimately think I was on psychedelic drugs. So our friends are all getting made over and they're still fucking singing through it all. Like the scarecrow is getting stuffed and the tin man's getting buffed and the lion's getting a permanent. Then the witch comes and she takes a good half hour writing surrender Dorothy in the sky in smoke instead of throwing a shit ton of fireballs down or something and just killing Dorothy. The guy that met them at the gate won't let them in to see the wizard initially, but he realizes Dorothy is the same Dorothy as the one from the witch's message, so he goes in to talk to the wizard. While we wait for him, the lion sings about how he's going to be king of the forest, and I wish I could sing it like the lion does, that'd be super fucking cool, but he like rolls his R's super hardcore and I just can't do it. Then the guard comes back and says the wizard says to go away. The guard sees how they all react and that Dorothy's crying and he sympathizes and starts crying himself, but it's like, dude, fucking stand your ground. Like, what does the wizard even have a guard for? He lets them back to see the wizard and the lion is really trying to bitch out on their way back to where the wizard is. Like, it's spooky on their trip back, but I think the lion just wants attention at this point. They see the wizard, and he's just a face projected on the wall and seems very angry. The wizard questions how any of them could dare come asking him for all of these things, and all I could think is like, Slow your fucking roll, dude. You're not better than them. They can ask you for stuff. He says that he will grant their wishes if they bring him the Wicked Witch's broomstick. So they have to go kill the witch, which requires them to go through the haunted forest. As they go, the Wicked Witch is using the crystal ball to see what they're doing and also uses it to fuck with them. But she doesn't make as much of her opportunities as she could, honestly. So she sends these flying monkeys to attack and they carry Dorothy and Toto away to the witch's castle. And my question is, if she's had these flying monkeys all along, 
Why hasn't she carried this attack out sooner? So the monkeys tore Scarecrow apart, so now the others have to put him back together, and the witch threatens to kill Toto so that Dorothy will give up the slippers, and Dorothy agrees to give them up, but the witch realizes that she can't get the slippers unless Dorothy dies. So naturally, the witch pulls out a knife and fucking guts Dorothy like a fish. Just kidding, this is kind of a children's movie. Toto runs away and the monkeys are going after him and the witch turns over a giant hourglass and says that's how long Dorothy has to live, but like, why do we need this countdown, witch? Do it now. So the witch runs away for some reason and Dorothy starts bawling and Annie M comes up in the crystal ball and it's like a black magic Skype or FaceTime or something, but it doesn't last. The gang finds Toto and they're nearing the witch's castle and as the guys are scoping out the joint, three guards come down and attack them, but the guys beat them in an unseen fight behind a bunch of rocks and the guys put on the guard costumes and they sneak into the castle. So they break through the door and break out Dorothy Dorothy, but the witch stops them as they try and leave, and they drop a candelabra on the guards and make a break for it, which was a pretty fucking smooth move. Luckily, they were standing right by the candelabra rope. The witch chases after them with the remaining guards, and the witch gets them cornered, and we as the viewers are like, oh shit, this witch is finally gonna fucking do it. She lights her broom with a torch and sets Scarecrow on fire again. And small fires are actually pretty easy to put out when you just smother them, but that's not what they do. Dorothy takes a pail of water and throws it on it, and it puts out the Scarecrow, but it also splashes on the witch. The water causes the witch to melt, and the witch is a little dramatic about the whole thing. And actually, I just realized that the M. Night Shyamalan movie Signs owes this movie a writing credit. Anyway, I don't really understand how the water killing the witch is like actually supposed to work or what it even means. Like, does it have deeper meaning than just water kills her? I don't know. The monkeys all praise Dorothy for killing the evil witch, and my question is, did she have the monkeys under a spell or what? Also, do they not know about the water thing? Like, one of them could have organized an uprising, and that's all I'm saying, like, they could have just taken her out. So they immediately come back to bring the broom to the wizard, and the wizard gives them some bullshit about needing to mull their wishes over and says they should come back tomorrow, and they insist that he keep his promise. Toto runs over and tugs at a curtain, revealing a man who is running a smoke and mirrors type thing with the wizard's projection. They confront the man, since he's the one that's really running the show, and he says that he can't really give them what they've asked for, so they all jump him and steal his valuables. But seriously, he gives the Scarecrow a diploma for Thinkology, which is fucking nothing. He gives the Lion some bullshit medal for the Legion of Courage. What the fuck is that? And he gives Tin Man a Flavor Flav heart clock that ticks, and it's like, what is that? But with Dorothy, he says that he'll actually take her right back to Kansas himself. And they're going to go by hot air balloon, the most efficient method of travel. Toto escapes the balloon basket, and Dorothy goes out to get him, and the wizard flies away in the balloon, which is ridiculous because the ropes were still well within reach, and they could have just tied the balloon basket back down and waited a fucking minute, but they didn't do that. So Dorothy is devastated that she missed her chance to go home, and Glinda shows up to save the day, but it's also kind of the worst thing ever. So 
she says that Dorothy always had the power to go back. And it's like, what? And Scarecrow asks why she didn't tell her that before, which is a fair fucking question, Glinda. Glinda gives this answer that Dorothy wouldn't have believed her and that she had to learn a lesson herself. And Dorothy explains what she learned, and it's like she basically has to look to solve her problems by not looking further than in her own backyard. So Glinda has her say there's no place like home while tapping her slippers together, and she goes back to Kansas. No one believes her about her dream, and that's okay, because it's kind of ridiculous. But I can't help but think that Miss Gulch will be back for Toto very soon, right? Like... She still has that thing from the sheriff saying that she can destroy the dog. You know, just something to think about. So anyway, praise for that movie. Some of the songs and score are pretty solid. The costumes are amazing. I really like them. The scenery, especially the fake stuff, the matte paintings and all that stuff are great. And for criticism, I would say I hated the Munchkins and some of the shittier songs like the ones the Munchkins sing. For trivia, we have many of the Wicked Witch of the West scenes were either trimmed or deleted entirely as Margaret Hamilton's performance was thought to be too frightening for audiences. Go Margaret Hamilton. I fucking love it. She was really good in this fucking movie. The only location footage in the entire film is the clouds over the opening titles. Over the Rainbow was ranked number one by the American Film Institute in 2004 on the 100 Greatest Songs in American Films list. Over the Rainbow was nearly cut from the film. MGM felt that it made the Kansas sequence too long, as well as being too far over the heads of the children for whom it was intended. The studio also thought that it was degrading for Judy Garland to sing in a barnyard. A reprise of the song was cut. Dorothy sang it to remember Kansas while imprisoned in the witch's castle. Garland began to cry, along with the crew, because the song was so fucking sad. The tornado was a 35-foot-long muslin, muslin stocking spun around among miniatures of a Kansas farm and fields in a dusty atmosphere. In the famous poppy field scene in which Dorothy and the Cowardly Lion fell asleep, the snow used in those camera shots was made from 100% industrial-grade chrysotile asbestos, despite the fact that the health hazards of asbestos had been known for several years. In the song, If I Only Had a Heart, the girl who says, Wherefore art thou, Romeo, is Adriana Casalotti, the voice of Snow White in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs from 1937. She was also paid $1,000 for her only line in the film. The movie's line, Pay No Attention to That Man Behind the Curtain, was voted the number 24 of the 100 Greatest Movie Lines by Premiere in 2007. There's No Place Like Home was voted number 11 in the same. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore, was 62. The latter is frequently misquoted as, We're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. Dorothy's slippers in the book were actually silver. The Cowardly Lion's costume was made from real lion and weighed around 100 pounds. There were many issues reported during this movie regarding colors showing up properly in Technicolor. The light of Dorothy's dress actually had to be light pink to show white. The original Yellow Brick Road 
road had to be repainted because it was showing up green. MGM paid $75,000 for the film rights to Baum's book, an astronomical amount at the time. So info and ratings, we have a runtime of 101 minutes, a budget of $2.78 million, which was a lot back then, worldwide gross $29.7 million, which is also a lot, IMDb rating 8.1, Rotten Tomato Critics score 98%, Rotten Tomato Audience score 89%, personal rating 4.5 out of 5 stars. I'm looking at it through the lens that it's a kids movie and it's just the way it is, you know, I mean, I, I can't really fault it for, you know, I, I don't really like it so much nowadays, but for a kid's movie, it's pretty solid. All right, everyone. Well, that was our show for today. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly had fun recording it. And obviously, as always, you know, reach out and let me know if you have any suggestions or requests or anything like that. And I'd be happy to potentially entertain those ideas. All right, everyone. Have a good rest of your day. Bye now. Brandon at Random Reviews is performed, written, directed, produced, and edited by Brandon Griffiths. Theme music is performed by Augusto Diniz from Fiverr. 